If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review and tap the follow button so that you never miss an episode. I'm doing my happy it's Monday dance. Yes, it's Monday. <laughs> it's Monday. It's time for another episode of RFRX, <laughs> your prescription for coping. I'm your host, I'm Kara, and welcome, Helen, co-host who makes everything 20% cooler. I How do. are you? I am wonderful. Um, I had a kind of a stressful day at work, so this is like some decompression time to hear an interesting conversation, be around my peoples. Yes. So I'm in, a, I'm in a good place right now. So how are you, my friend, Cara? <laughs> I am doing well. I also just came back from work recently. So this is the thing I look forward to on Mondays as well, to actually get to be around sort of um, people that I like. I mean, <laughs> sort of be around in the sense that we're on Zoom, not people that I sort oh, of I, like. I, I, thought you were saying, like, I get to be around <laughs> sort of the people I like. <laughs> You're like Frodo Baggins over here. Well, yeah. I like half of you, half as much as you deserve. <laughs> Whatever, less than half of you. I don't. I get it wrong every time. It's I'm okay. Stop quoting. <laughs> it, it does make Mondays easier. I have to say, like every Monday, I'm like, oh, it's Monday, but I'm like, oh, it's RFRX tonight. Okay, well, my Monday's not so bad. <laughs> Yes, and yeah, fair point in the chat. It is Tuesday for some people, so <laughs> happy Tuesday as well. Tuesday, and it is also Tuesday for our special guest. Not on American time zones. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what these people are doing. They're in the wrong time zone or something. I'm kidding. It's not. You're not doing it wrong. <laughs> now I am going to take a time to introduce Richard. Richard Firth. Um, God be here. He is a PhD, is one of the world's leading expert on emotions. He is a distinguished professor of global arts and humanities at Watson University and an honorary research fellow at the Center of the History of Emotions, Queen Mary University of London. His award-winning interdisciplinary interdisciplinary research. Wow, that's a big word. She walks the line between history, psychology, linguistics, philosophy, and futurism. He examines how understandings of emotion change over time and space and how these changes can influence the wider world. Already translated into over 20 languages, Richard's latest book, A Human History of Emotion, How the Way We Feel Built the World We Know, is available from all good bookstores. Welcome, Richard. Um, please go ahead and dive into you, your talk, my friend. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I am so happy to have you on, Richard. I, I have to say, I like crammed your book. Okay, I've listened to the audiobook. I, I didn't read it. I don't know if that's cheating or not. But I, I finished that in less than 24 hours. And I, I have to say, I'm not kidding. I, I enjoyed this book more than any other book I've read this year in the last year. Okay, it's only it's only March. So like, that's not a great statement. Like, this was a cool book. I loved this book. I'm super excited to hear about it. I I cannot wait to get into this. Like, thank you for being here. This is super fun. I'm ready to nerd out. Thank you. Can can I take you around bookshops and get you to make that speech to the people in the bookshop so they get more copies in? Because that would be really useful. Really handy. Absolutely. I am here <laughs> for it. I will talk about books anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> And I am super excited to talk about yours. Um, mm -hmm. For people who haven't read it, like, tell us about it. What is this book? Why did you write it? Like, tell us everything. 
it's uh, a very long story. Ba the main reason I wrote this book is because my field, the history of emotions, is, I think, really quite cool. I re otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I, I love it. But almost everything written on the subject is really academic and really dry. And it's for people like me to look through, not read properly like academics don't. We always use indexes and jump to bits. And it's that kind of stuff. So I wanted to introduce it to the world and write something that people could actually read and not fall asleep to, hopefully. Um, and um, so that's why it exists. It's a sort of an introduction to the history of emotions. It goes all over the world. It starts in the Greek era. It ends slightly in the future. Um, you'll hear about uh, African warrior queens. You'll hear about Plato. You'll hear about the birth of Christianity and how emotions had a, uh, had a lot to do with that. Crusaders, Ottomans, you name it, witches, that's all in there. It's packed full of sort of the, the most interesting bits of the field for the past 20 or 30 years. About half of it's my research, the rest of it, I nicked off my colleagues, they don't mind. So, but um, yeah, so that's why it's written and that's what it is. I loved it. Yeah, I, I don't even think I could pick a favorite chapter, but like, I'm going to make you tell us about a lot of them. So get ready for that. But, you know, something that I noticed uh, in this book was, you know, it's the, the human history of emotion. Mm -hmm. And you know, many of the chapters did kind of get into uh, people's experience of different religious faiths. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, um, is there a particular reason that you kind of selected that as a backdrop? Is that sort of an area of, of human life that seems particularly ripe for the study of emotion or what's it's... going on there? It's something that uh, has been studied a fair amount in the field um, because it is a, a very a fertile ground for emotions and because most religions are born from some emotional reason. People very rarely become religious uh, and convert into religion because some of their logic's into it. They might pretend they do afterwards and say, yes, yes, it was it was the uh, it was the Kalam argument that won me. But it wasn't. It never was. It was always some emotional reason. But actually, the birth of religions is often due to some kind of emotional switch some kind of different understanding of emotions so for example um ashoka the great who was he's revered for being this great benevolent leader who was a buddhist and he planted trees on hot in hot places and he was very kind he was a devout hindu who converted and his conversion was basically him having a different understanding of the emotion of desire he went from desiring to follow his dharma his path to desiring to reach nirvana and it completely changed the way he interacted with the world because before he it's nothing to do with him being hindu but before he became a buddhist he was um well he was known as ashoka the monster so you can fill in the gaps there he changed completely from one side to another um there's a story that he went to hell to find out how to torture people so he was kind of a nasty guy. And then he had this massive conversion when he was in the battlefield and actually saw firsthand the carnage of this battle that went wrong and just thought, no. And he was already toying with Buddhism and he decided he wanted to get past it all. Um, so emotions are important there. And in Christianity, since we are who we are here tonight, uh, Christianity, 
St. Paul was wonderful at blending Greek understandings of emotions and Hebrew understandings of emotions and bringing them together, which is basically what Christianity is. It's this Hebrew idea of what sin is, which is, if you read the Bible, it's things that God goes yuck at. It's anything that God thinks is disgusting. Um, and this Greek idea of, the, of using emotions and emotions being not a good feeling or bad feeling, but you can use them to get away. So if you feel like you've sinned, then feeling guilty about it is a good feeling because then you can move towards back towards God. And Paul just took these two sort of understandings of emotions from these two cultures, wedged them together and created the Pauline Christianity that 90% of Christians are uh, with that. So that's why there's a lot of religious emotion stuff in there because that's where you find it. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I so relate to what you, you said, you know, I, I've had so many family members like try to like convince me to like reconvert back to Christianity and they'll come up with these, you know, really creative, elaborate, like I'm using heavy air quotes here when I say logical arguments mm. about it, you know, as if that's what's going to convince me. But then, like you said, every time you ask them though like well what's the thing you know that really draws you to religion mm. it's always some like deeply personal sort of emotional experience it's not like they they took a class and found out that you know pascal's wager was the way to go you know it's yeah it's always something something more emotional that that really draws people in so that makes sense yeah a, a, a uh, they want a personal relationship with jesus they don't want to sit writing logic tables with him you know it's it's um yeah. it's it is an emotional thing for most so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to ask you about like one of the first things you, you definitely hooked me in the beginning of the book. You make what sounds like a, a pretty bold claim when you say uh -huh. that, you know, humans and other animals don't actually have emotions because our kind of modern conception of emotions is, is a bit of a social construct. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Unpack that. I probably paraphrased that poorly, but like. Yeah, so what it, do you it's, mean? It's, it's complicated. Doesn't mean we don't have feelings. What it is, is emotion is a very recent English category of a certain kind of feeling that was invented uh, pretty much whole cloth by a guy called Thomas Brown in the year 1900 in the speech he gave. And people later, people like Darwin and that really like that definition of emotions as this particular kind of feeling, which to him was the kind of feelings that are a bit like hearing or seeing. You don't see something, think I saw that and then see it. And you don't hear something, think I heard that and then hear it. You just see it. You just hear it. If you just feel it, Brown said, that's an emotion, a it causes you to move outwards, a motion outwards, which is something unique from Descartes, as usual. Um, his idea that you feel something, you motion outwards. But before him, we had loads of categories of feeling. Even in English, we had passions, and passions were those things you feel in your body and they make you think something. Affects, which are the things when you think about something and it makes you act in a certain way. We had sentiments, which are the feelings you get when you see beautiful art or, or someone being morally good and all sorts of categories of feeling. So emotion is kind of an English box of feelings. And even now, I've known through my translations that they will send me messages saying, this we have to categorize like that because we don't quite have emotion how you have it. We have these other things that aren't quite the same. So shall we say this? And I go, yep, yeah, that sounds fine. 
translated away. I don't speak Chinese. You do do your thing. So it's um, that's what I mean by that, that emotion as a category was invented basically by a guy trying to get he was trying to separate reason and emotion once and for all was what he was trying to do. Um, I'll get into why he failed eventually, but that's what his attempt was. That makes sense. And I I loved that about this book because my training is in anthropology and I loved that you mentioned so many anthropologists in this book and you get into postmodernism and poststructuralism later on. And I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stop. But okay, tell us more as we go on. Um, the next question that I wanted to ask you about was this concept of the emotional regime. Mm. This was the first I had learned about that. Tell yeah. us more. An emotional regime. There's a great, great historian called William Reddy, um, and he came up with this idea. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go a bit further in the book. Uh, there may be people who know of Austin and the, the his language theory, the idea a book he wrote called uh, "How to Do Things with Words," um, and basically. He said there are two types of words. There's constatives and there's performatives. But constatives are just words, just like this is tele, this is mobile phone, this is water. They don't do anything. They just describe things, really. A performative is an utterance that changes the world, like a president saying, I declare war, or someone at a wedding saying, I do. They actually change the actual world, these, these utterances. Um, one of the types of performative is something known as an emotive. And William Reddy took emotives, which is kind of a, I'm happy. And, and he, he said, there are these kinds of language, like uh, emotives that are, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm good, I'm bad. And when somebody asked earlier, how do we do history of emotions? Well, we look for them in texts. We look for these emotives. We look for when people write something that says how they are feeling and what they are feeling. And usually that means they're changing as they write it. They are appraising their feelings and realizing what they are. Um, but those performatives, those ways of understanding our feelings are held within a structure top down within our cultures. There are certain ways we are allowed to express our feelings in certain ways we aren't. And it's not just sort of the big culture, it's subcultures, little cultures. So the classic example is say you worked for an airline um, and you were uh, it's the pot. It's not even an airline. It's it's a private jet company, and you're serving on the private jet, and a total asshat gets up, rude, obnoxious, horrible, and he asks, he screams at you for a pillow. You will say, "I'm happy to do that for you, sir," and smile because that's the emotional regime. You have to behave that way. It's your job. There are these other things called emotional refuges, and that's the bar afterwards where you go and sit with your mates and go, well, I was working with this guy and he was a complete asshole. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's the other thing. So an emotional regime is this sort of structure that makes you behave and act in certain ways within and constrains how you can express your emotions. And we can find those in history as well, in all sorts of places, not just in text, you can find it looking at gravestones and the way people write about people who've passed on and the way that changes over time. And things like that will tell us about these emotional regimes. And often when emotional regimes break down, you get revolution. Um, because it will be an oppressive regime. People are sick of having to 
behave how they're told and pen their emotions in and they'll just bust out and the pitchforks will come out and next thing you know uh louis head is in a guillotine so um that's an emotional regime in a nutshell well it's not really a nutshell i wandered a bit but yeah that's an emotional regime no that's great yeah <laughs> and and that that pops up several different times in in the different kind of scenarios mm. that you describe in this book right yeah. from witch hunts to masculinity like it's all yeah. it, it's oh, all yeah. an emotional regime and i'm wondering like are we always like operating under an emotional regime is there a way to mm. say to yourself oh i'm reacting in a certain way this must be you know a part of the prevailing emotional regime or like is there ever a way to really even recognize that or separate yourself from it in some instances you know exactly when your work behaving as you ought to um there are you know certain places where you can do certain things in certain places but you can't we all know that for example we would if we go to dinner with our family the way we behave and the way we express our emotions would be very different to a night out in town with friends um unless it's my mom but that's a whole other story but most people it's a completely different way of doing it and even just i mentioned in the book that what my go and see my family my family are all sort of overeducated uh, louts with a really dirty sense of humor uh, and we get on like that but my mum's family my mum's family my wife's family they're not like that at all so how I have can express myself completely changes and I know it I know I'm performing that I'm, there's a performance going on and how I can express my emotions is different um, at a state level usually people notice when things are getting really bad Usually people notice when people are being oppressed and being told you cannot do that and they want to do it. Um, and it goes both ways. You know, it's it's there are there are obviously groups who are oppressed who want to express themselves and should be allowed to. And the culture says, no, keep quiet. Uh, Florida and um, places that have this. Hey, of, you hey don't call yourself. me out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Helen loves the the political emotional regime of Florida. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure I, she does. I, I love living in chaos. It's fantastic. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, anyway, moving on. Moving on, uh, and then there's other play other things the other way. Like uh, in America, the uh, the Christian right right now, they really believe they're being oppressed because they're not allowed to express themselves the way they used to be anymore. They're not allowed to express their emotions and feelings about things the way you used to, which is not necessarily a bad thing because sometimes you do want to have an emotional regime, put some structure in to stop people being kind of horrible. Um, so they're not always a bad thing. They can sometimes they sometimes are the bedrock of a society. And, so long as they're moving in the right direction, they can be a good thing. Ooh, that's good. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, so based on what you just said about like, you know, the um, Christian right kind of like losing their shit right now. Yeah. Um, over time, when you did the research book, do you find that when these kind of things prop up that as society adjusts to this outcry of um, em like, you know, emotional feelings, you know, they're having a lot of feelings that over time that the, it tends to, you know, settle down a little bit as the culture changes. Yeah, uh, usually things will settle down. Um, I mean, 
usually things change when there's big changes it takes a while to settle down um and when by a while i'm a historian here so i don't mean a week or a year or even a decade um as a historian, I'll tell you right now, we still live in a post-war society from the First and Second World War. That's how we are. It's going to take us a long time to get over that. So that's still feeding into us. Um, but things like the Internet is going to take a century for us to actually calm down about and stop being so ridiculous about and, and other things. And, and yeah, things do change, usually with new information, usually with huge changes in the world. Things will change and there will be emotional upheaval. Um, I could go on and on. My, my main field, the thing I studied back when I was just a historian, before I decided I wanted to study everything, um, I was early modernist. And so I know that the fall of Constantinople and the discovery of America and everybody going, hang on a minute, that continent. Uh, can you find it for me in Aristotle and the Bible? Because they must have mentioned it because they knew everything. And everyone going, no, it's not in there. And everyone freaking out about that because all of a sudden they realise there's things that the Bible and Aristotle had a clue about, which freaked everybody out. And then diseases and famine and everything created a, basically a climate of fear across Europe. So much so people genuinely thought the end times were coming, which led to things like the witch crazes, and all that sort of stuff, because they needed scapegoats for this coming end time. They needed to try and fight it. So how could they fight it? Well, let's find foot soldiers of the devil. It's her because she's old and she shouted at me once. Um, and, you know, it's um, so and that did eventually, as people came out of it, came around from it, lead to the Enlightenment and weird concepts like democracy that nobody thought of before and all this kind of stuff. But it takes time. And I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that it's going to take a bit of time again with the internet and stuff, but it will get better. Um, and I think, I personally think that the noise the Christian right are making in America right now is just a, a, a death rattle of bad ideas. So, you know, and here, uh, but it's happening a bit quicker here because I think our far right are a year away from being pretty much wiped out electorally. So. I like that you take kind of the long view of it. It's it's kind of calming to yeah. to hear from someone who looks at, you know, kind of the long <laughs> durée of history yeah. and saying, it's going to calm down. Give it some time. Yeah, like you, you kind of have to. I mean, we it's all a lot want to of hurry up and wait. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I want to say, you know, you said you used to be, was it early modern historian? Early modern, yeah early modern, and then you went to studying everything, I would make the argument that social scientists who study everything are called anthropologists, but. Eh, sort of, eh. um, we call them, my actual PhD was in something that called, called the medical humanities. And basically that was my funder's title for, you want to study five things at once, well, let's invent a title so we can fund you. Uh, medical humanities, that'll do. So I did sort of, a, my PhD was a mixture of, historical linguistics, corpus linguistics, um, history and psychology with a bit of philosophy thrown in here and there, because that's the only way you can study this topic. You've got to have all these things. Okay, you, you win. So, <laughs> so I'm a medical humanist, that whatever that means. 
I have never heard that before and I love it. I'm going to have to go Google that now and you're going to make now, me go now, back to this school. This is what you know you're going to do your second degree in, Tara. This is exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> Historians later will look back on this moment and be like, ah, yeah, that was the moment. Yeah, that was yeah. it. Yeah. No, it's making an assumption that anyone will care. But <laughs> I'll care. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. I appreciate I, that. I, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes. <laughs> okay. I have so many questions. I don't even know where to begin. Okay. I'm just going to start. I loved, <laughs> see what I did there, that you talk about St. Augustine reframing uh, sort of Christianity as mm. being based on love rather than blood sacrifice. And yeah. so... In that chapter, you kind of make the argument that, you know, the, you know, crucifixion of Jesus was initially understood as this is a fulfillment of the required blood sacrifice to yep. atone for sin. And then after St. Augustine, he kind of reframed that to being about, oh, well, God is love. And, and that's kind of this primary feature of the religion. But then at the same time, that kind of sense of of love that people were having was also used to kind of fuel the crusades and get people mm -hmm. stirred up to engage in in all of that kind of thing as well and so first of all i love that you made that distinction because i always felt like you know the old testament god just didn't seem that nice and we keep talking about you know god is love and i'm like he wanted everyone but um, aside from that i wonder do you take a position on whether St. Augustine's reframing of Christianity in this way as being about love rather than blood sacrifice, did that ultimately have like a net positive or net negative impact on human society and history? Or is that a question you can answer? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated one. Immediate. I mean, the chapter it's in for those listening and watching, is a chapter that explains a very old paper in my field called Crusading as an Act of Love by a, uh, a really great historian um, whose name I've forgotten. He's called, he was called John. I forget the rest of it. He was brilliant. But the argument is that when Urban made the speech, Pope Urban made the speech that kicked off what we now call the First Crusade, he mentioned love and caritas quite a lot, the idea of charity. And he was trying to instill in people the idea that they had a love of their God, which meant a love of the Holy Land where, where Jesus came from. Therefore, they should go and defend it. Uh, from these marauding hordes and they should go and fight against them um and the, you know the first crusade they got lucky because the uh, the muslim world was fighting amongst itself and then all the other crusades were an absolute cock up and were terrible and the crusaders got their asses handed to them as often as not but that's a whole other story but um in that first crusade it was very much to the point where there are islamic writings about crusaders that say these these westerners are weird they seem to really love this place for some reason we think it's a bit hot and dusty but we're here because we're gonna be but they love it it's strange i don't know what's wrong with them that's how much this kind of love came across but of course it was a crusade so it was a bad thing it was a really bad thing um for them and for everybody and i think this it's it's because it's got to be a particular kind of love what's important is there's two kinds of love there's self-love which is love of the self, love of enrichment, love of being of, of being wealthy and being successful and just basically self-love. And then there's 
the proper love, which is the love of the finny, the love of the, the target, the love of God and heaven. Um, and so that was the, the love we're talking about. And that kind of love can do bad things and very often does do bad things. Because if all you're focusing on is, frankly, loving a fairy story, <clears throat> then you're not focusing on humans. It's not loving. Well, there is. They have that love thy neighbor in there, but you love thy neighbor as a way to love God not just to love thy neighbor so it generally i think can do more harm than good when you look at love like that uh, as this uh thing you're supposed to give entirely to a fictional place that doesn't exist you know it's all about what happens after you die rather than loving people now which i think is a much better thing to do because i'm an old hippie well, it, it is interesting because like, you know, there's definitely, you know, fictional stories that people fall in love with. They get involved in the worlds, they get involved in the characters and, you know, there's, you know, whole academic of academia that studies, you know, um, lit literature, you know, and have a love for it. But it's very mm -hmm. interesting when we're talking about religion, which is a fictional story that people um, have enough emotional attachment to it that they're willing to give up their lives for it and do extreme things for yeah. fiction based on these extreme emotions that they have. <laughs> yeah, um, and people do that all the time in all sorts of different shows. I mentioned Ashoka earlier, who was a similar thing, that it was a, uh, a change in how he understood desire to this new sort of focus of desire of, of reaching nirvana, of, of peace, ultimately. Um it's it's yeah i mean um augustine wasn't inventing the wheel he nicked it all from the greeks everybody tends to nick a lot of things from the greeks so he was just using plato and and uh plato's idea that there is uh, a, a real good uh, and then there's a a a fake good so there's sort of i think it's Buleus and udomania and you're supposed to go for udomania because that is the proper good happiness it's, it's hard word to translate but it kind of means contentment peace um wisdom all those things um and that's what you should go for and, and augustine was nicking that um and applying it to christianity um and the idea is that that peace that comes with the finny comes with the the final place and the final place of course is heaven and being in the arms of your god um yeah, and it's it's strange that people can get so powerfully tied to these emotions over something that because of course, and many, most people here will know that you don't think it doesn't exist when you believe it. You absolutely think it is the most important thing because it's the afterlife, isn't it? And you want to go to heaven and you don't want to go to hell, and that matters more than anything. So that's why you get such powerful emotions attached to it. It makes sense. I, I mean, it, and, and that's, I mean, that's a great point. It's like, nobody thinks they're getting this excited over something that's, you know, not real. Yeah. Obviously it's important at the time, <laughs> but uh, you know, people have different perspectives. Okay. So one of the emotions that came up a lot in relation to religion that I was surprised by, but it makes total sense after you explained it was this emotion of disgust. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that coming. I don't even really think about that as an emotion. 
I, I mean, it, it is, uh, but it's not one I would have expected. But you really connect that a lot to especially like the like Christian Old Testament God and the way people relate with him. Can you tell us more about that? I understand this is kind of your special area of oh, expertise yeah. too. As I always say, in my field, I've been told that when people think of disgust, they think of me. Um, so, yeah, um, basically, um, I'll start at the beginning, almost, back when St. Jerome was translating the Latin Vulgate from early Greek and Hebrew versions of the Bible. He came across a load of words that always associate with sin. Whenever you mentioned that God was going to feel you were going to do something that upset God, there's this set of words in Hebrew. There were shikets and shikats and geal and lots of other words. And there's a couple of Greek words as well. And he looked at them all and went, I'll just use one word, abomination. There we go. It's, it's, a, it's an abomination. So if you read the Bible, the English Bible, you'll find that every time a sin is mentioned, it is an abomination before the Lord. Every time. Because he, so he already simplified this quite complicated idea of disgust, of yuck, of the thing which makes God feel, oh, get away from me. What have you done? And you have to appease him by cooking something or sacrificing his son or some other weird kind of sacrifice. Um, yeah, you're right. Of, it's food. You have yeah. to appease him with tasty food. Yeah. God loves a barbecue, apparently, which asks the question, why didn't they cook Jesus? But that's anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they got it wrong. They forgot to light the fire. <laughs> man, cooked a bit of cooked man flesh. It's OK. We, we eat him every month at communion. It's fine. Yeah, to my mum's old joke, that's definitely not the flesh of Christ. No flesh sticks to the top of my mouth like that. But, um, ah, ah. <laughs> but yeah, um, she's still a Catholic, sort of, kind of. Um, I like your mom. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole, um, yeah, so we got this word abomination. And this word abomination basically means is, is a sin. If you do a sin, you, if you feel this emotion, abomination. And it comes from a Greek idea, which is fugasio abominatio, which is flight or running away or abomination. So you either run away from something, move away from something that's going to harm you, or you just feel gooey and horrible and need to get away and avoid it. Um, and uh, sometimes likened to either disgust as we understand it, yeah, or being tickled or that those kinds of feelings that's abomination but and this is where my research comes in i discovered that in the period between 1500 and 1750 every time the word abomination is used in an english text there's something about god around it i'm talking about those emotives the emotive being used will always be an abomination before the Lord, abomination before God, that abomination is sin, the sin of abomination, God and the abomination of always. So it is very much a religious disgust, even in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, 18th century. It's all still a religious disgust. The only time it's not, the only other word that comes up a lot are things like witch. So witches are often described as abominations who cause the feeling of abomination. So yet again, witches are seen as idolaters because they worship the devil. And that is the, the ultimate sin. And that's why um, in Europe anyway, that's why in Europe they were often burnt at the stake because they were heretics who worshipped the devil. In the UK, in England, and they said the UK, that's technically incorrect. In England, 
they weren't burnt at stake. They were hung because they were um, they weren't heretics. They were just mistaken. <laughs> they were just troublemakers. But in Europe, in Ger the Germanic states, all that area, they were burned as heretics because they caused abomination. And if you look at the art, it's it's one of those things where I always say that I'm sorry to tell all the women of the world this, but judging you by your bodies is not a modern invention. It goes back a long, long, long way. And whenever you see it, uh, if someone like Hans Bolden Greer or Albrecht Dürer depicts a witch, they always are either elderly women who, like all of us, reach a certain age and things start to kind of gravity starts to win that kind of look. Uh, they might have teeth missing, they have funny hair, they'll be doing something weird like riding a goat backwards, or they're young women doing something absolutely wrong. Like um, if you look, go for uh, if you look for young young witch with hex uh, and the dragon, I think it's called by Hans Bolden Greer. There's a thing going in and out of this woman, and I'm not even sure which direction it's going. That's the best way to describe it. I'll not say where it's going into her or out of her. I'm not sure what it is, but it's coming from the dragon or into the dragon or something. And that's an example of how either you're an old an older woman who doesn't look right or you're a young woman who doesn't act right and therefore you're an abomination and therefore you're a witch you see um, and so this sort of disgust thing this version of disgust because lots of disgust has this thread throughout history where it does these things quite a lot um and uh, i could go about disgust all night i could tell you about wonderful things that you'd never want to eat that i've tried all of them except the only thing i did actually manage to eat was scandinavian all i'll say is if you go to a country and they say would you like to try the local delicacy the answer is no oh always. it's bugs it's always bugs <laughs> oh i like bugs i don't mind bugs bugs are yummy but um wow. fish that's been buried in mud for three weeks with, and then uh, wait that's peed on friends went to iceland and it was yeah. and he's like i tried it and i was in he's like it smelled terrible and i, I was like how did it taste he's like it tastes even worse i was like why why yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? cheese portuguese teas that has maggots still alive in it no so he did really like haggis when he went to scotland oh haggis is just a sheep that's eating itself so <laughs> yeah so he, but he said it was barley. actually pretty good and I, I, i'm not there <laughs> i i did have a question though um because we've we, you've talked about discuss before and especially when it comes to purity within um the with especially in when in like abrahamic religions and yeah. it's also in other um, world religions but is it sometimes also related to envy because there are certain um, activities like uh, like things with like sexuality, you know, yeah. and trying to keep like gatekeep um, certain things about sexuality and somehow like the envy of certain activities, like if you're queer or you're a woman that like, you know, just likes to get it on and they relate it to discuss, to but it's also kind of wrapped up in envy at the same time. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. Um <laughs> In some cases, yeah. I yeah. mean, the, 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 the disgust, disgust is basically, it's, it's a very complicated emotion mm -hmm. that's thought of very differently in different parts of the world and by different cultures. And we assume it's all about yuck and feeling nauseated, but in lots of parts of the world, it isn't. It's just about avoiding harm. It's getting mm -hmm. away from something. Um, and it has very, very, very deep uh, a, um, 
evolutionary roots in what's known as the pathogen avoidance theory that we develop discussed because if we see some if something eat something that could give us a, a pathogen could kill us then it'd kill us so we developed looking at the fruit and seeing it's rotten and going there don't want to go near mm-hmm. that or smelling it and going there or tasting it in particular going ah spitting it out mm-hmm. we developed that to stop getting killed by it any of us who didn't do that we all died of food poisoning our ancestors a long time ago so but culture really builds on it and one of the things that disgust does is disgust is one of the big engines of othering it's one of the big powerful things that drives the process of saying they are not like us so they are wrong they are Mm. the other they are them yuck get away because um Pathogen avoidance theory, the idea they have is that our brain sees people who behave in a way that our group doesn't understand as being some kind of social contaminant. So we sort of our brain doesn't know the difference and treats them the same way as an apple. That's slightly rotten. And it's mostly criminality. People who are criminals, someone does something utterly dreadful, a terrible criminal act. And you think of them as being disgusting. That's a disgusting thing that you did because our brain kind of, um, there are some studies though, if you want to ask me what I think of fMRI, don't because I've actually had a study. I've been subject to the study of fMRI and I think they're utter, utter crap, but that's a whole other thing. But, okay, um, then I want to ask you. I'm going to ask you about this later. <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute. But yeah. So anyway. But there have been studies that show the same parts of the brain light up with its, its moral disgust or its physical disgust. It's kind of the same thing. And so um, I think what happens is pe- there are some people, and this is the other thing, there have been studies done that have shown that the more you are susceptible to physical disgust, the more politically extreme you tend to be. Um, these uh, are studies that people keep trying to falsify and they keep coming back with the same result because you go, no, that can't be right. Let's do it again. No, it still can't be right. Let's do it again and over and over again. Um, and so people who are really, really right wing in particular, because originally it was just the right wing that this was done by with um, uh, a guy called Jonathan Haidt did this a lot of this research and it's really good research and others don't since um they see don't see the difference between people who are different to them and things that might poison them if they their brain doesn't see the difference and that's why they're so utterly terribly bigoted because it's another and they need to get it away ah get away don't do that go away let's put some stupid law in sorry i'm picking on florida again let's put some stupid law in that means you can't mention anything other than heterosexuality in schools um and you know and it's uh, it's this is one of those i think we ought to be better at policing ourselves with it and uh, when everyone does something and might i instantly go oh, i think why am i feeling that that's why i like bugs because someone brought up the tray of, of bugs and went these are all food now give me one there we go. And, so, you know, and I discovered grasshoppers taste like prawns. So, okay. So, is that, would you say that's a good way to inoculate yourself? Like, so for example, if somebody realizes, huh, I'm having a disgust reaction to something that is not poisonous, it's maybe some social practice mm-hmm. that is different or something I've been taught to 
dislike, like, I feel like, for example, a lot of people in the LGBTQ plus community experience this reaction sometimes from people who are just mm. thinking, oh, uh, well, I like you as a person, but I just like can't imagine, you know, being gender nonconforming in that way or engaging in, you know, any kind of same sex activity. And, and they're like, I'm having this disgust reaction, but I don't want to mm -hmm. like what can people do about that? Well, one of the best things we can do is we can get lots and lots of media of people in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, because one thing that you can do with disgust is you can desensitize to it. Desensitization is often seen as a bad thing, but without it, uh, our surgeons will be really terrible at their jobs. Because what you don't want is someone to ha hack your guts open, look inside, see a problem and freak out. You want them to be able to go, you know, go, oh, no, I can't do that. You want them to have to just get in there and do the job. Uh, it's also why psychopaths make great surgeons because they don't freak out either, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> genuinely do. High number of surgeons are psychopaths and politicians and lawyers. Um, that's the stats. But, um, yeah, you can desensitize. And the best way to desensitize things is to see it more often. So it's the old thing of normalizing. Have more LGBTQ plus people on TV snoggy uh you know getting on more than that even you know uh, anything by russell t davis in the uk anything by russell t davis that isn't doctor who and sometimes is doctor who everybody should be made to watch it all the time because it's just lots and lots of gay sex with a bit of plot thrown in usually russell t davis and things and you know it's good tv frankly so <laughs> yeah i was gonna say what's wrong with doctor who nothing and <laughs> doctor who is yeah doctor who itself is you know the, the new doctor's going to ruffle a few feathers because he, he's brilliant, Chutie, but he's very camp. But I think he's fantastic. I think he'd be a great uh, new doctor. Um, I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> we can geek out over Doctor Who later. Yeah, yeah, we'll this happens. Yeah. This happens in the yeah. Hangout a lot. We we just drift off into sci-fi quite yeah. a bit. So <laughs> but, for that. Um, it's like we're all a bunch of nerds that hang out together. <laughs> There's not much. Someone just put no spoilers. I can't really spoil much because the next episode's what a year away, and even that hasn't got the next doctor, and it's got someone else. But if you haven't seen that yet, I may I'll stop there. Um, so <laughs> yeah, um, so I, that's it. Desensitization, uh, and some people desensitize easily, and others, those who are very, very, very right wing, they probably never will. They'll keep freaking out. They still think it's this. Oh no! And get over it. <laughs> so, so Come this on. is like to some extent, kind of. You're saying some people may be more predisposed to have a like a stronger disgust reaction to things. Mm. And yeah. if that's the case, that's going to be somebody who's more likely to be politically extreme. Generally, yes. That's what the data keep showing. Um, mm. That that tends to happen. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and it's, I mean, extreme, the ones who are really, really on this test that uh, Jonathan does all the time, the ones who are really disgusted by everything are really out there on the, on the peripheries and on the left as well. And it's, it's, it's a purity thing as well, because they believe their politics is pure politics. 
and everybody else's is some kind of contaminated wishy-washy what you're oh there's a little bit of left wing in your right wing there's a little bit of right wing in your left wing so you're not proper you're not a proper socialist because you're not a marxist you're not a proper conservative because you actually think it's okay to be female you know that kind of <laughs> it's the not horror the, it's the horror i know the, the, the peripheries we're talking about are the really hard to shift ones everyone else can move inwards with a bit of desensitizing i like to think Somewhat. Yeah. i feel like we could all do with a little bit of desensitizing i yeah. mean and you go into that too uh, in the book about how you know politics has gotten so polarized because people are so invested in this you know it has to be exactly perfectly ideologically pure or yeah. you know your garbage i guess yeah yeah that's that's where it's Head, I think we might be seeing a little bit of a rebound from that coming. Um, you know, as I was saying earlier, that the conservatives in the UK are the furthest behind they've ever been. If there was an election tomorrow, the polls say that they'd be the fourth party, which is, you know, no major parties had that kind of an obliteration since the Liberals in 1922. So it'd be just a game changing moment. Um, and, you know, Barry, uh, it's, it, Trump's candidates didn't do all that well, did they? <clears throat> so maybe there's a rebound happening over in the States as well. Um, I don't know how long Italy are going to put up with the idiot in charge there. They're already grumbling. So I think there may be a rebound happening there. But I think things are rebounding inwards a little bit with a skew left, slight skew left. So we'll see. We'll see. Fair enough. Yeah. Or maybe we won't see, but some historian in the far off future will see, maybe. Yeah. One of, one of the changes is I was talking about people start to work things out. People starting to work out the internet a bit better. You know, uh, if you go on Twitter now, you, you know where the idiots are and more people are just clicking past them now than engaging, I think. Uh, I like to think. Um, I, I look at threads now and there's always that one. You know the one. And there used to be a huge hundreds after them. And now there's like two. And I go, oh, okay, mm. that's better, you know. So... That's fair. Maybe yeah. maybe the the trolls are are slowly starting to, to yeah. kind of. I don't grumble. go on Twitter. It's yes. a cesspool. <laughs> I don't moved. go there. I don't. I'm like I'm like I wasn't on it before Elon. Wasn't it? I like I I do have a Twitter account, but it's just to advertise RFR stuff. I don't I don't go on Twitter. It's a it's it's just a I, no <laughs> no. I'm, I'm quite strict. It's either telling people what I'm doing or congratulating colleagues and that's about all i use it for yeah so. yeah yeah i can't stand it honestly sometimes <laughs> i feel like i'm the only person that just cannot stand everything that happens on social media but you have to be on there for things like you know people posting jobs or mm -hmm. baby showers or i mean everything yeah that's great so how does how does technology fit in with emotion? You get a little bit into like AI and things yeah, like that. That's where I'm heading next. I've just been, I'm just signing up my second book and I'm going deep, deep into that world. Um, Ooh, yeah. Tell us it's, more. It's scary. I can't tell you too much because I want you to read this new book when it comes out. But um, <laughs> basically, they are trying there are something called effective computing and they are trying to give machines emotions uh simulated feelings and it's not going well um they're also trying to track human humans feelings so that they can do things like there's a, a company called affectiva 
and they've developed a system that is already in a million cars that they're trying out. What it does is it spots you having road rage and then parks you at the side of the road uh, until you calm down, uh, which I can't see working very well. Uh, I think there'll be a few bonnets, a few windows smashed through of people getting even angrier um, and things like that. Um, the problem is the science they're using comes from 1971. It's a guy called Paul Ekman, and he came up with this idea called basic emotions. And he believed what he did is he basically his supervisor, Sylvan Tompkins, uh, had gone around much of the world um, and shown people faces and asked them a question. So he'd show them a face. It was like, and the question would be, <clears throat> somebody leaves a rat in your kitchen. Which face would you pull? You pick faces <clears throat> and he believed there were six that everyone was picking every time happiness sadness um disgust surprise uh fear and anger those six and yes inside out if you like your disney it's five of those um is inside out and he and that was it what paul ekman did is he went to the foray tribe in the middle of papua new guinea and he did the same experiment with them and got the same results and went, ha-ha, we found six universal emotions. Except it has been since shown that that whole thing was a little bit shit. Um, firstly, the Foray tribe weren't untouched by civilization, like he thought they were. Uh, um, the people have been studying for years. They, they had people who spoke English and could translate for them. So how untouched is that? Um, and all sorts of other problems with it. It turns out if you do a similar experiment and don't force them to look at just six faces and pick which question goes with them, they all have different choices, different places in different parts of the world. Um, so it's wrong. However, AI people who want to give emotions to machines look at these six and go, oh, that's easy to program. I can just program in six. And then they look at the other theories of motion and go, there are thousands in the others. You know what? I could get these six done in the weekend. They'll take me the rest of my life. So there's this kind of narrowing to these six emotions that robots are getting, are having, and our AI is sort of tapping into and our cameras that track us are tracking us for these six emotions. And there are cameras out there that are tracking us, our faces and our emotions right now. The biggest place is Russia and China, as you might expect. They've got well over 400 million cameras doing it already. But uh, they've been testing them in airports in America. Hasn't gone well, but they have been doing that. Um, and there's some in other places. But of course, what ends up happening is you end up doing those six faces so you don't get into trouble. Because um, if it's not one of those six, they go, what's going on? And they tell you into a little room and question you. And you miss your flight and you get very angry and you sue them, which is basically what's been happening. Um, it's called Spot. Look it up. It's terrible. Um, Paul Lechman himself did the training for this thing. And it's just... <laughs> it was a nightmare it's it sort of in the late noughties late zeros um so yeah that's where it's going that's where the technology is going and there's some other things in the future i found interesting like emojis the east and the west used to have different emojis and we don't anymore we're all converging on the same one so as we're in the west there'll be horizontal and be all out the mouth and in the east it'd be um it'd be the other way up and the it'd be table all about the flip eyes. yeah it'd be yes. all about the eyes oh, I... yeah in the yes. east 
Um, uh, yeah. There's some of my colleagues who've done research that they think that's why the East took to masks better than the West did, because in the East they could still emote to each other using their eyes, and we're terrible at that. So we looked a bit like walk the zombies wandering around to each other, whereas they didn't. Um, I'm not. We need to smile better. Yeah, there's some other research that shows even in the West we're good at checking emotions with eyes. It's all a big mess at the moment, but they like the idea. Um, but yeah, so um, that's the future. And there are other things in the future, like the emotions of climate change that I'm starting to look into at the moment and things like that. Um, because there's a particular group of emotions that all the people who've already been affected by climate change all report having, no matter where in the world they are. So that kind of thing. So that's the future. It's future for and me anyway. Yeah, oh, that's really fascinating yeah. because would you say also that, you know, a large number of the people who have been most affected by climate change are also, you know, societies that are perhaps not in all cases, you know, the wealthiest uh, Western societies in the world. A lot of times it's indigenous communities and people that have already been displaced who are now feeling those effects. Sometimes uh, and there are other places. Uh, I mean, the one one that was really interesting was when Pakistan had the massive floods, uh, which is the first of many massive floods that they're going to have over the next decades until it stops being floods. It starts being an inland sea, basically, is what's probably going to happen there. And so, um, the, again, they report it's kind of a combination of anger and guilt and uh, a pining for home, a lost home, and all these sort of things come together into a single like a single expression of feeling um and it you know pakistan's not a it's not the wealthiest country in the world but it's certainly not poor and really you know as a nation it's not poor. the people there are poorer than they should be but as a nation it's not you know we're not talking the marshall islands who've got very little money and um, again marshall islands very angry people and so they should be <laughs> so yeah um but yeah uh, the future of emotions is actually quite interesting so that's what i'm looking at now Ooh, well i cannot wait for your next book because <laughs> i really enjoyed this one and i'm i'm gonna drop the link again in the chat for this one hold on i'm doing that now <laughs> okay there we go um any uh any word on uh, when the next one's coming out it's gonna be a while uh yeah. it'll probably be sometime 2024 because I'm, I'm, okay. I'm four chapters in um oh, nice so. oh, you're practically done yeah only another 10 to go so. <laughs> okay well, that's great no i know that's the worst question ever when someone's like so when is it gonna be done you're like when it's done <laughs> stop asking yeah <laughs> well that's as douglas adams once said i love deadlines i love the whooshing sound they make as they pass me by so <laughs> as a hundred percent that i love it so okay well we're definitely looking forward to that but in a, a broader sense like what is it that you feel like you know studying and understanding emotion can do for us like on the day-to-day -day, like why should we study this why should we care because emotions and i know skeptical and and rational communities don't like to hear this, but emotions are what govern a good 80 to 90% of everything we do and every choice we make. Most of our choices aren't made because we sit and rationally have them. We don't pick a seat on the bus because we rationally stand there and 
calculate which seat is best. We, just, we sit there because last time we sat there, we liked it. Um, you know, for example, and almost every choice we make, we are making thousands of choices almost every second how to move, how to, and all of that comes through feelings and emotions. I'm going to broaden it to feelings. Someone asked earlier, what's the difference between feeling and emotion? Again, the best way I can say what's the difference between feeling and emotion is hunger is a feeling. It is not an emotion. You feel hunger, but you don't emote hunger. Um, I don't know. Have you met me when I'm cringy? I was about to say. That's anger. Anger is different than hunger, right? Yeah. (laughs) Hangry. Yeah. Um, which is actually why one guy, uh, a researcher called Jack Panskip, doesn't think that disgust is an emotion because he says it's the opposite of hunger. It's not wanting food. So oh, he that's says, interesting. If we, if, oh. if, if, we, if we say disgust is an emotion, then hunger has to be as well. See, everybody agrees in my field on everything. So, like, oh, of course. Including what emotions are not. Um but yeah, so feelings are every feeling you have, every single feeling. And feelings are how we navigate. The best way to describe it is when you don't have language, when you can't speak, when you're, say, a cat or a dog, and you need to navigate the world. You navigate the world because you feel hungry, you feel tired, you feel like you want to play, you feel things. You don't think, you don't have a language to think in. So you feel feeling is how you get around the world all the time we humans and a few other animals have this bigger part of our brain that allows us to think about those feelings and think about things so we are more complicated um but we still do most of it with feeling um and so understanding that i think helps it helps you understand that quite often your decisions will be made through feelings which leads into the whole world of emotional intelligence and understanding what feelings you're having and understanding how to recognize those feelings and decide which ones you're having are useful and which ones you should just let go because they're not going to be useful um and which is also cognitive behavior therapy which is also the ancient art of stoicism whole other topic there i could do a whole night on stoicism and emotional intelligence um and then recognizing in others the emotions of others and being able to communicate better and deal with people better because you get that. Um, because interacting people on a rational basis will never happen. It's just not, we're just not, we just don't do that. So that's why I think studying emotions is important is to, you can be better at stuff and it will help you in the long run. So. And we like to be better at stuff. That yeah. is what we're here for. <laughs> I love it. That's that's great. I feel like that's such it's it's such a realistic way to talk about people. Like we spend so much time thinking about, you know, how can we be more rational and mm. and logical? And and yes, that's a great skill. We do want to to do those things, but also we're never not going to have emotions, right? No. <laughs> no. Um some people there are psychopaths in the world who who don't empathize with other people. They have their own emotions. They just can't get other people's. Um Psychopaths get a bad. I'm just going to say, psychopaths get a bad rap because 99.999% of them live happy, healthy lives and don't hurt anyone. Like I say, they're surgeons, they're they're lawyers, they're uh, bankers. They do the jobs that you don't need to freak out and worry about other people for. But they can understand that keeping other people happy is good for them, <laughs> so they do that. You know. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's more of a, a calculated decision than a, yeah. a feeling one, but it's yeah. 
that's another way of thinking. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, I tell you what, I could never be a surgeon. I, I've watched a surgery before. Mm-mm, not see, I can watch surgery and I have no problem with it. Like it, it drives Todd's. Like I don't know how you can watch this. I'm like, it's interesting. Like. You know, like mm-hmm. I like watching things about surgery, but he's like, we all freak out over if it's too, it's a body horror movie. I'm like, yes, yes. Cause there's emotions behind it and it scares me. <laughs> so yeah, matter of fact stuff, I'm like, okay, cool. Fix the heart. Yeah. <laughs> you could do it. <laughs> no, I don't want to do it. I, no. I find it fascinating. But that's way too much schooling and responsibility. And I'm a lazy person. <laughs> that's fair. also fair yeah well okay so on that note i feel like it's about time to move into q a but um where can people find you richard um other than than your book and then the next one that's coming out soon the current book is a human history of emotion yep uh, and then we'll have the next one soon but uh where else can people find Um, you if people look up dr rich fg on pretty much anything uh, YouTube, fa- um, not Facebook. So that's Dr. Richard FG, but Facebook's for me mom anyway. But uh, a face, but on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and the like, Dr. Rich FG, they'll find me. Excellent. All right, I'm dropping Great. that in the chat. I love it. All right, excellent. And nobody else took that before you got it. No. Yeah. <laughs> I- I have this problem all the time. There's some other Kara Griffin running around that takes all of the screen names to everything. Oh, no, I'm, I'm lucky. I just use my surname because virtually nobody's got my surname. So if I need to. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's go to questions because we did get some questions mm-hmm. and I'm super excited to ask these. I have many more questions too, but you know, we do have to let you, you know, finish at some point. But let's do questions. Are you ready for questions? I'm ready for questions. Outstanding. Okay, so this is a good broad one to start with. Oh, Cara, so- before we go into questions, do we want to re- review the poll? Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. We should do that. Okay, let me pull up the poll results. Yeah. And if we want to redo the poll afterwards, we can we can do that too. Yep. Okay, I will share the results of the poll questions. Can you all see those? Mm. Okay, I will read them. And so for anybody who needs to be reminded, uh, the first question that we asked was, how important was or is emotion to your religious experience? And the answers were 29% of people said that emotion was or is very important or the most important element of their religious experience. 42% of people said it was somewhat important. 13% said not very important. Nobody answered not at all important. Uh, and 16% of people were not sure or it's not applicable. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over 80% think it's, it's irrelevant. It is, yeah. it is irrelevant, not it's irrelevant. Yeah. It is relevant. Yeah. And nobody answered not at all relevant. Mm-hmm. So there, there you go. That backs mm-hmm. that up. I mean, this is, you know, not necessarily, you know, an unbiased sample, but, you know. <laughs> For our purposes here interesting and uh let's see question two was do you think that all people experience the same basic emotions 16 percent of people said yes of course 42 percent of people by far the largest amount said yes but with some differences 10 percent of people said no 
13% of people thought this might be a trick question, and 19% <laughs> of people were not sure. So that one's a little more split. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And then the third question was an accident. Um, but <laughs> to catch up on whether people have any rituals involving magical thinking, such as wearing lucky underwear, 13% of people do, and 68% of people do not, and 19% of people are not sure about this question. I can give you an example from my field where that I can show that the people who say no are wrong. Ooh, tell us Ooh. more. Yes, I want to hear this. <laughs> a brilliant guy called Paul Rosen who's recently retired. Well done, Paul. You earned it. He's about 82. Um, he did an experiment a while back. And what he did is he said to everybody in a room, uh, this is a cardigan. This, this is a jacket. This is a cardigan. Uh, who would wear this for $20? Uh, put your hands up. And the entire room put their hands up. And then he clicked his little button. And a picture of the old owner of it with a certificate to prove that it was his flashed on the screen. And the old owner was a guy called Adolf Hitler. And then he said to the room, OK, now who would wear it for $20? And about 95% of the hands went down because people believe that evil, disgusting behavior can actually infect clothing. It can transferred it's now a sympathetic magic and it's just wired into our brains and it's irritating you know and it's the reason you'll throw your trash away at a mcdonald's table but you won't throw the trash of the people before you because they're dirty you don't get dirty you know um <laughs> someone else can move that and it's yeah and it's been done a few other times somebody did a very similar thing later a guy called bruce hold and what he did is he had a glove that used to belong to the world's most prolific serial killer fred west um and when they were proving it was a glove he then followed it up and as people walked out they had a choice of the hand wipes or a pen as a freebie and the people who mm. said yes i'll still do it put the glove on and then every single one of them took a hand wipe on the way out and cleaned their hand. Huh. Everyone else went for the pen. Of course you would. So we are susceptible to that kind of magical thinking at some at the level of disgust. And there's nothing we can do about it because it's kept us alive for 20 million years. So, you know, animals do it too. Excellent. Yeah, we did. We talked about that. Yeah, animals will also engage in magical thinking. It's not just yeah. Yeah. people which is kind of interesting so mm. i i guess that kind of goes back to your point that it's it's built in to some extent yeah it's built in and you know it's it's a it's a mechanism for staying alive so because yeah if it was contaminated mm. like i say, the brain doesn't know the difference between moral disgust and physical disgust so it just thinks it's contaminated and behaves accordingly Stops yeah. from getting poisoned yeah. Yeah. that's fair yeah that's fair all right. Well, on that note, here's here's my plan. Y'all tell me what you think. Last time we experimented with a new game where we did the poll again after the talk. Do y'all want to do the poll again now having heard new information? And I'll stop sharing the old one. Somebody answer in the chat if you want to do the poll a second time. Anybody want to change their answers? 
I'm doing the Jeopardy theme song in my head here. <laughs> now I'm singing a different song. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what song that's from, Helen. I don't what, know. What theme I, show it, is it's that? Just a, it's just Helen uh, randomness in my brain. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm hearing some people might want to yeah. do it again. Okay, let's do the, here's what I'll do. I'll put the poll up again if you want to answer it again. Do it during the Q&A, and, and then we'll see if anything changes. So let me see if I can relaunch the poll, because we said we would do this last so do you want me to start why you go ahead and repost that i will relaunch the poll you go with the first question okay so richard uh-huh how does one go about studying the history of emotions um, i kind of covered it a bit with looking for emotional regimes mm. and looking for uh, emotives but also there's a few different histories of emotion. Um, you can treat it like a history of science. So you can look at what people thought emotions were. So you can mm -hmm. look at what Plato and the Greeks thought emotions were, what writers in the middle in the Middle Ages thought the emotions were, and so on, and build up a sort of a history of the science of emotion. Look at William James and Freud and all these people. So that's one way to look at emotions. Another mm -hmm. way is to try and find texts where people talk about how they felt in certain situations and what that means so i mentioned the the old testament the hebrews were very good at explaining how they felt about things if you read the bible they talk about the spleens and anger and all sorts of mm -hmm. different bits of the body that felt different feelings so that's one way um and you can look for those sorts of things um the asante of africa had a wonderful thing that they said that anger was like weeds bursting from the chest and you should tr keep them trim, otherwise they will take you over, which is a kind of visual way of feeling this feeling mm -hmm. of here that they had for anger. Um, and, uh, and you can look at things like there are ways of looking at object histories of emotions. So a colleague of mine, um, Sandy Holloway, who's absolutely brilliant, she wrote a book about emotional objects. And so, for example, the objects are left by parents when they give up their children for adoption or give them to a home because they can't look after them. And they leave an object with the kid. And you can look into what and a note and what that means and what that tells you about how they were feeling and how mm -hmm. the children felt and what the children say about it years later with oral histories and things. So there's all sorts of ways you can look at histories of emotion. Depends what you like to do. yeah that's interesting i'm gonna look up that book too i'm now i'm gonna have more books on my list there'll be more books <laughs> yeah i can't keep up i'm gonna have to listen to everybody's audiobook on like five times speed and <laughs> hope i can absorb some of it <laughs> okay so here's another question that someone asked um they were asking can you tie emotion to the classic definitions of sin for example missing the mark falling short going off the path are these kind of generated from emotions do you think or yeah it's all tied to that old augustinian idea of love taking you in the right direction in the right path towards the finis towards the the end towards the end goal uh, quite yeah yeah I agree with that um Augustine has a lot to answer for <laughs> but yeah it's kind of that so you're off the path that means you're not following the correct emotional path towards that heaven and God himself you're moving away from it and you should feel bad for doing that and of course somebody says oh you've fallen off the path they're shaming you or 
making you feel bad for doing so or you're shaming yourself i've fallen off the path you know it's terrible I'm, I'm, i've moved from i need to get back where i was going so yeah it's, it's an emotional thing very much so fair enough what's next helen you got another one for us i do um so someone said um what was the difference between emotion and a feeling are they two distinct things do the yeah. definitions overlap <laughs> yeah as i said earlier a feeling would include hunger uh pet being if you get stabbed nice thing to talk about if you get stabbed that's a feeling you feel pain but you won't call that an emotion you might have an emotion at the same time the emotion of oh my god i just got stabbed but you wouldn't you know it's not so there are feelings you can have you can be hot you can be cold you can be hungry you can be all sorts of things that we wouldn't call an emotion and like i say an emotion was kind of invented to take a particular group of feelings and put them in a box uh the feelings they thought were brainy feelings it turns out all the feelings are brainy feelings really but including hot and hunger so um uh, that's kind of the main decision the other thing interesting about feel the word feel is it's pretty much the only word that you can find in almost any language in this topic. Uh, almost every language on earth has a word that translates almost directly to the English word feel. Um, so it is a broader thing. Interesting. I like that. Yeah, we did yeah. talk about that in a previous episode too. Somebody mentioned in the chat. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so... Okay, somebody else was wondering, actually, can you say the name again of the artist who you mentioned who did the drawings of the witches? Um, Albrecht Dürer. Oh, wow. Maybe um, we need everybody to wants to, the, everybody wants to look at the kingy witch photos. <laughs> yeah, they're like, what was moment, coming out of that dragon? <laughs> oh. I know this group. <laughs> yeah, we, we know what's up. Yeah, we know. Okay. So, for your for your viewing pleasure, oh, uh, yes. on, what am I doing? Try that again. This one is one of them. Wait, uh, where am I going? There we go. There's one in the things, and let me find hands. trying to type one hand because the keyboard's way behind the microphone. I'll get there. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's not the one. Yo, oh yeah, I got one. this one pulled up. Okay. There we go. That's the one I want. So when you start sharing our screens and the kinky kinky um witch photos paintings. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah Drew is a genius but he is a bit <laughs> North European is the nicest way to put it a bit dark with some of his stuff. That's usually stuff I like. Yeah. <laughs> I like creepy stuff. Yeah. Do you like to draw about magic and witchcraft and weird stuff like that? So yeah, so that, yeah lots, that's my jammy jam jam jams. <laughs> lots of depth to his artwork. Uh, a lot of depth. He did one called Melancholy that I've got in my office through there, which has got like a very complicated astrological magic symbol in the background and things like that. His animal work is beautiful. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wood carving. I don't know yeah. where you begin with it. You've got mm -hmm. to think in reverse for a start because mm -hmm. it's going to be printed. So you actually, yeah. It, anyway. 
Excellent. All right. Welcome so. to our let's well, uh, welcome to our corner yes. <laughs> at our FRX. <laughs> Never yeah, know you what you're going to get. If you look at the second one, if anyone can tell me which direction that stuff is going, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Hard you know, to say. It is. Yeah. Love it. All right. While we digest, what else do we have here, Helen? Um, how does disgust related to social contagion become whichever emotions are associated with violence? How does disgust become a so social contagion leading to violence? Yes. Um, it's because you violence is one of the reactions to wanting to get rid of something that you think is going to contaminate you. To get it, you want to get this thing away from you. You want to, in the case of witchcraft, you want to you want to cleanse the earth. You want to eradicate it from the earth. You want mm -hmm. to so it's gone, and that entails violence. Um, and it's used the most famous use of disgust as a form of, of creating a form of fake social contagion so they could act violently was the Holocaust, of course. Mm -hmm. And the way that the uh, German propaganda machine had films and posters depicting Jewish people and others as rodents and rats that need to be exterminated. Um, it's a very dangerous, powerful emotion. It can lead, be used as a pretext for violence. In fact, almost every every um, act of genocide uh, is preceded by an act of disgust-based othering. Um, if you look at the Rwandan genocide, the same thing happened. They started describing uh, the, uh, the people they were killing as cockroaches um, and so on. Um, you're just dehumanizing them, making them disgusting, and that gives you the right, or you believe it gives you the right, air uh, quotes, to commit these terrible violent acts um and if you think they're less than human then and you think they're some kind of contagion then you want them gone you want to get rid of them you want to cleanse mm -hmm. them um and it's uh yeah that's why i think disgust is important emotion because understanding it helps you understand people who do that kind of thing um and hopefully ways of mitigating it through like i say um plenty of gay sex on television um and mm -hmm. so so I love this solution. I'm I'm all for it. <laughs> I'm all for more queer people doing kinky things on TV. I'm a fan. <laughs> Heard it here first. Yes, that's right. I love it. All part of the gay and all. Yes. <laughs> so okay, so somebody has kind of a question on the other side of that. They're mm -hmm. wondering, is it possible for desensitization? to go too far like let's say you're trying to control this disgust response that you're having to something but what if you get to the point where for example someone close to you dies and you feel nothing because you're so desensitized to death or suffering it's just like no big deal like can you can you desensitize yourself too much and then you're you're not really experiencing things in a way that you would want to there's a big, I mean, there's a big fear that, de I mean, desensitization is often portrayed as a really bad thing. You'd be de desensitized to violence, and so you'll commit violence. The old computer games argument that people yeah. on computer games get desensitized to violence, and then they'll commit these acts of violence. Uh, it's usually without much merit to it, because actually, 
things in the real world are different. Uh, being desensitized to death, say you are working in the death industry, you are an undertaker or something, you'll still feel really bad when someone close to you dies because that's how humans work. That's, that's all about oxytocin and belongingness and the closeness you are to someone. So no matter how desensitized you are to <coughs> a stranger's death, a person within your circle's death will hit you usually quite hard. And if it doesn't, then it was never going to anyway, um, because it's actually hard to get rid of the oxytocin response. It's a very, very important one because we are a herd animal and we like to be in groups. And that's why we have such a strong oxytocin response, because that's the chemical that makes us feel belonging and love. Um, so I think it could happen. You could become so desensitized that you don't care. But there's usually other problems if you go that far anyway. You know, um, serial killers famously start with animals and work their way up. Uh, and it used to be argued that was a desensitization thing, but it's not really. It's more a bravery thing. They always wanted to kill the people. They just need to work their way up to the bravery of doing it. So they did something small first. Um, <clears throat> so I suppose theoretically it's possible. I just don't think it would happen that often. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. What else do we get? I will do one more because um, I know that it's getting late where you are, Richard. It is almost, it is, it is getting late. So um, what do you recommend for getting in touch with core emotions and what they mean? Um, there's a few ways you could do it. I am a fully certified and qualified mindfulness coach. Uh, that mindfulness is a good way of doing it um although there are like any other form of counseling there's a lot of people in mindfulness who will begin by telling you about your chakras uh and all that kind of stuff so avoid uh and there will there's also people who will tell you that mindfulness can cure anything and it can't if you have adhd i don't recommend mindfulness for example it just won't work for you You'll try to it meditate won't. and you'll scream the house down. But yeah, it's I have not for you. does not work. It's not for you. Yeah. Um, but for a lot of people, it does work really well. It's a great, it's a great help to just learn to calm down and to stop judging your thoughts. It's literally all mindfulness is. It's a way of learning to let thoughts come and go and not spend all your time being anxious about. It. That's all it is, really. Uh, and it takes time and it takes patience. And it's not easy. People think mindfulness is this easy thing where you just calm. It's not. It's actually as hard as most other therapies. It takes time and it takes effort and it's difficult, but it can work. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy um, is another one that's ancient. Uh, we do like to put scientific names on things that are very, very old. Emotional intelligence is basically you'll find in the re book Rhetoric by Aristotle. So yeah, it's the same thing. And uh, stoicism, we now call cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's the art of learning to reckon, what I was talking about earlier, learning to recognize emotions uh, and decide how useful they are to you and whether they'll take you where you want to go or help people around you or whether they'll just be a hindrance. Again, CBT is not easy. It takes effort, it takes time, it takes... So it, all these things are... Not easy, but they're all doable. And there's something for just about everyone, but there's lots of different ways of doing these things. But I, I do mindfulness and I do CBT-based mindfulness, or I used to. 
haven't done it in ages. I'm thinking of doing a free YouTube course one day, but I never get around to it because not enough people have access to it. So I thought. Well, you can come back here and uh, do a course anytime you want. Okay. So, <laughs> or welcome back. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us this evening. This has been amazing. This has been so good. I'm, I am super excited that we got to talk to you about this and learn all about feelings and emotions and sentiments and affect and everything else. And I'm going to try to use those terms correctly going forward. <laughs> we'll probably get it wrong. You'll have, to, you'll have to listen to the book again on three times. Affects <laughs> a slippy one because everyone uses it differently. In the field of emotion research, no one can decide what emotion, how to define emotions. And no one can decide how to define affect. And often someone will say emotion when they mean affect. And someone will say affect when they mean emotion. And it's all a mess. Uh, and it's something that I, it really frustrates me because everyone's talking about the same thing. They're just using different words and they all think they're talking about different things. It's causing these arguments <laughs> that need to happen. Uh, anyway. Yes. I've literally had this argument with people before about affect. And I'm like, yeah. I'm feeling something and I don't know what to call it, but this conversation is frustrating me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad we're on the same page. Okay. <laughs> or we might not be. I don't know, but. Yeah, that's a yeah. tricky one. It feels like <laughs> you're on the same hard. page. <laughs> what matters? <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for sharing this with us. This was fantastic. Yeah, thank I, you, I Richard. You're the best. <laughs> no problem. It's nice. Yeah. Fun. I like talking about my field and writing about it and shouting it from rooftops. <laughs> yeah. Well, feel free. You're welcome yeah. back anytime. Yeah, just thank you. just just dm me you know and i'll be like yeah you can come back sure <laughs> come on and talk i'll to probably us. And ask when... you again at some point <laughs> yeah and especially when your new book is ready you definitely yes. have yeah. to come yes. back so for that that'll, sure. that'll be a while away <laughs> yeah it's okay no pressure no rush but when it's ready you let us know <laughs> recovering from religion is a non-profit organization whose mission it is to provide hope healing and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief Hope, Healing, and Support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering From Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.